0: This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Art Greens, the Enemy of Progress, and was recorded at last week's Battle of Ideas satellite event at De Bali in Amsterdam. The chair is Rob Lyons.
1: Yes, it's it's great to be here. uh... Amsterdam again. So I'm I'm Rob Lyons, I'm the Science and Technology Director at the Institute of Ideas in London. We're the people that organise the Battle of Ideas Festival. It's it's our 11th festival this year. It's big. There's over 100 debates over the two days of the festival. We have 400 speakers. We have two and a half thousand people who come along each year to London's premier arts centre, the Barbican. So if you uh, have nothing to do two weeks on Saturday, then please come over and, and join us. Uh, I think this, this is a, a fascinating topic that uh, Marco has organised this debate on and he's got an excellent panel of speakers. Environmentalism is probably the most important political movement or at least school of political thought that's kind of emerged over the past few decades. Green parties have been involved in, in governments, most notably in Germany, but more broadly I think most people I would say are positively inclined to... Being green in one way or another, politicians and big corporations at least have to pay lip service to uh, environmental concerns, and and green organisations like Greenpeace are among the biggest campaign groups in the world. But that doesn't mean that environmentalism is without its critics. The green argument, I I suppose in a nutshell, is that human beings are too dominant on the planet, they're using up too much of our precious resources, polluting the air and the oceans and destroying natural habitats. Well, critics would argue that environmentalist policies are holding back the kind of economic growth that can liberate humanity from poverty and from from need, and the kind of economic growth in the past that has enabled people to live much fuller lives, yeah, and tackle disease and so much else. So who's right? To what extent should we embrace green ideas? What price are we willing to pay to protect the environment? Or are there policies that we could have both, where we could have full economic growth, and at the same time, uh, reduce uh, environmental damage. So we've got a broad spectrum of different views on this matter. The first person to speak will be Brendan O'Neill. He's editor of Spiked, the London-based magazine, with claims to want to make history as well as report it. Uh, He writes very widely, including for The Big Issue and The Spectator in the UK, and publications like The Australian in Australia. Most aptly for this discussion, he's the brains behind a spoof eco-columnist, Ethan Greenhart, and produced a book which is a collection of Ethan's eco-advice columns called Can I Recycle My Granny a few years back. Brendan's new collection of essays just out now is called A Duty to Offend. Uh, the next speaker will be Frank Mulder, he's a writer, researcher and journalist who writes about long-term developments in the economy, technology, religion and international relations. Uh, he works for a number of publications including one of tonight's partners, and I'm going to try and pronounce this right, De no, Groene right Amsterdam. okay thank you, <laughs> and his latest book, The Happiness Machine, I'm not going to do the Dutch title for that one, was published this year. Third speaker is Ted Nordhaus. He's co-founder and chairman of the Breakthrough Institute with uh, Michael Schellenberger. He created a bit of a storm in 2004 with an essay entitled The Death of Environmentalism, Global Warming Politics in the Post-Environmental World. And he is one of the co-authors of uh, an eco-modernist manifesto, which uh, again is making waves. And then the final speaker, who is Juris Tyson, he is Campaigns Director at Greenpeace Netherlands. He's been involved with Greenpeace for 15 years now, uh, having studied aerospace engineering, and having also done, a, uh, six years ago, done an MBA in Rotterdam. But he says, I still work for Greenpeace anyway, so he'll be the last to speak. Without any
2: further ado, Brendan. Thank you, Rob. Uh, thank you, Marco, for inviting me. Climate change sceptics, people who deny climate change, they love to refer to environmentalists as... Watermelons. This is the latest insult they use against environmentalists. And what watermelon means is that these eco-activists are green on the outside, but red on the inside. So they might look to us like happy, clappy tree-huggers who want to preserve Mother Nature, but underneath that kind of veneer, they are politically red. They are communists. They are plotting the overthrow of capitalism and its replacement with a kind of socialist world government. Now, to my mind, this is the most infantile of all the arguments put forward by climate change skeptics. I hate the term watermelon for two reasons. First, because it flatters greens, it makes them seem like these kind of 21st century revolutionaries who threaten to turn the world on its head. Nothing could be further from the truth. In my mind, environmentalism is the most soul destroyingly conservative ideology of our times it demonizes the conquest of nature and it valorizes restraint its rallying cry is caution not revolution and its conservatism is really captured in the fact that it constantly campaigns against change most notably against climate change which has successfully made the word change into a dirty word but also against major economic change in africa where environmentalists, environmentalists prefer sustainable development, or as I prefer to call it, poverty, over industrialisation. And it campaigns against serious change here in the West, where it has helped to institutionalise the precautionary principle and it has hampered the nuclear revolution, the GM revolution, and various other potential leaps forward for humanity. A movement that is so allergic to change cannot be spoken of in the same breath as Reds of the past. Radical leftists wanted to overhaul everything. Greens just want to put a lid on everything. They want to control human greed, rein in human industry, limit human reproduction. The second reason I don't like the term watermelon is because it utterly misses the point of the environmentalist movement, which is that it is not a continuation of the radical left-wing politics of the past, Rather, it represents the defeat of that politics. It represents the final burying of the left-wing ideals that inspired swathes of humanity, including me, from uh, the early 1800s through to sometime around the end of the 20th century. Greens elevate the needs of the natural world over the needs of humankind, and to my mind, that is a complete aberration of what was considered the progressive outlook for 200 years. Environmentalism is implacably anti-progress. Now, even though people of all political persuasions can be involved in environmentalism, and a lot of right-wingers and even far-right-wingers are involved in environmentalism, it is nonetheless generally seen as a leftish thing. And I find this really curious, because leftism and the humanism that preceded it emerged precisely as a conviction a conviction that mankind should not bow down before nature. but Instead, mankind should demystify nature and humanize nature in order to make the world a safer and more plentiful place. Right from the Enlightenment to Leon Trotsky, this was the key idea of progressive thinkers. Right from Francis Bacon, who said we had to extract nature's secrets, to Trotsky, who said mankind should earnestly and repeatedly make improvements in nature, the enlightened moment in history was all about calling on mankind to conquer and tame and, yes, exploit nature. This was about refusing to accept that there were natural limits to what mankind would achieve. That was fundamentally what progressiveness was about. Environmentalism does the precise opposite. It insists that there are strict natural limits and it calls for the policing and the punishment of those who break those limits. I think we need to recall that the progressive left-wing view emerged largely as a challenge to the idea that poverty was a natural state of affairs. It argued that there was nothing natural about people being hungry or poor or destitute. It argued that these were social problems, not natural problems and mankind could fix them if he put his mind to it. So consider Karl Marx's attacks on Thomas Malthus. Malthus can be considered, in my mind, one of the first greens. He claimed that there were only so many natural resources to go around, and therefore if we had too many human beings, we'd use up all the resources. There would be plagues and pestilence and famine and locusts and all sorts of other biblical claptrap. Hysterical stuff, but also very similar to the rubbish put about by uh, Greens today. Karl Marx put the boot into Malthus. He described Malthus's arguments as a libel on the human race. And Marx's arguments with Malthus really set the tone for 100 or 150 years of progressive thought. Progressive thought which argued that natural scarcity was not the problem mankind faced. Marx very clearly said... If we accept the Malthusian idea, then, quote, we have to accept that socialism cannot abolish poverty because poverty has its base in nature. Every progressive was devoted to challenging the idea that poverty had its base in nature. Not now. Now to be progressive, to be green, means to argue that there are natural limits And that uh, when we come up against those natural limits, we create problems for mankind. I just want to quote Mark Linus, one of the founders of eco-modernism, who argued, the struggle for equity within the human species must now take second place to the struggle for the survival of an intact and functioning biosphere. In other words, the progressive project of ending poverty, liberating humanity from want and reliance on nature, must take second place to environmentalism. This is the inhumanity we face under the cover of environmentalism. And in my view, you cannot make over environmentalism, which seems to me what the Eco-Modernist project is devoted to doing, because this is not something that can simply be made over you have to challenge the political underpinnings of environmentalism and those underpinnings are misanthropy malthusianism the idea that nature is the cause of our problems particularly our interference with nature we have to criticize and expose the inhumanity of environmentalism as ruthlessly as marx criticized and exposed malthus's arguments thank you very much Frank.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Well, probably you would like to hear a defense of uh, environmentalism now already. Uh, You're eagerly waiting for that, of course. But I was asked as a journalist, because I can give nice side views on the subject, so I'm sorry for you. You have to to wait with your (laughs) eagerness a little bit. Because I I would like to talk about progress. What is the goal of progress? And uh, by what means do we want to achieve it? Fundamental in, the, in that debate is technology, of course. People often think of technology as a kind of tool. But technology is not just a tool, it's an environment. So today I spent my day, most of the time, um, in a kind of warm cocoon behind a screen. I was chatting with people on the other side of the globe. And after that I walked through a shopping mall. I was listening to synthetic music, trying to sell me synthetic clothes with... Posters with synthetic people made more beautiful by Photoshop. After that I went in the train to this place and people around me were all immersed in their own world, talking to distant friends. Well, philosophers have coined this a hyper-reality. It's a kind of artificial world that is meant as as, as an improved version of reality, a kind of Disneyland, where we are not bothered by problems like hunger or rain or beggars or ugliness or annoying people, but there still are annoying people. For example, I live in a, in a neighborhood with many immigrants and poor people, and many of them are annoying and are difficult to, to relate to. But for me, it's even more difficult to relate to them because I, I spend my time in a, in a hyper-reality, and it's very hard to connect to just the poor people around me or to nature because the world is, my world is plastic and concrete. Well, the thing is, We are currently trying to roll out this hyper-reality in the whole world. One example. Last year I visited a conference organized by The Economist, sponsored by Monsanto. It was about how to feed the world. They talked about hunger. But among all the speakers were just two people from the south, one of which was a farmer. In all the debates about how to feed the world... They talked about one thing, efficiency and production. They didn't talk about the biodiversity or redistribution or justice, only about growth. How can we make sure that farmers will be more efficient and more productive with our technology? And the farmers, well, I got the feeling that the farmers were seen as nothing more than an obstacle on the road to a nice, shining, efficient world. Well, the high-tech agricultural systems that we need for this, that we are currently building, and as the Netherlands we are actively exporting these systems, they will be completely disconnected from nature that is used for it and also from the people and the communities around them. So it's also a hyper-reality. And these systems are connected to growth. We can only roll out these systems... If we can increase our means and our money, our tools, our power, only then we can sustain these kind of systems. Otherwise, they will collapse. But if something becomes indispensable, like growth, then we are sacrificing other things to it, and that's the danger. We think that we can master growth, that we can master power and technology, but then they will master us. So to summarize, we are creating a hyper-reality where we have to feel happy all day, but we are cut loose from our environment. And secondly, we're also rolling it out in the world, and it helps us to take away obstacles, but we forget what it means for the poor, for nature. They are seen just as resources for our machine, resources for our systems. Well, so in the end, we swim in the means, but we don't have a goal anymore. The means, I mean, in the means, the tools. We swim in the tools, but we don't have a goal anymore. Like Jesus says in the Bible, we win the whole world, but we lose our soul. But I don't know if it's smart to mention Jesus uh, among progress thinkers. But, well, back to the main question. No, no, one thing. I think that some things are an end in itself. They have value in itself, like nature or relationships or silence or virtues or justice. This is the good life but that is different from feeling good. So are environmentalists hindering progress? Well, I really hope so. Because progress in the sense of maximizing our wealth or maybe for smarter progress thinkers, maximizing the amount of happy feelings in the world, that's dangerous. And also some environmentalists are tempted to frame their green ideals into this progress story. They say we have to save nature because it's useful and otherwise we will die. I don't find that very inspiring. But I think environmentalists who who can show us how valuable nature is in itself, how valuable uh, justice is in itself, how that is part of the good life, I think there are necessary prophets in a world where everything is seen as useful or not useful.
0: Ted. Well, thanks uh, both to Brendan and, and Frank, who I think in some ways sort of framed this debate very well. You know, I, w- I was thinking as I was thinking about this sort of enemies of progress, and to make one an argument about who is the enemy or not of progress requires, first of all, two things. First of all, you have to believe in progress, and secondly, uh, you have to be able to say what it is. And I was reminded, uh, it sort of brought me back to uh, a book that was written about 25 years ago, The End of History, by a political scientist named Francis Fukuyama, who basically argued that sort of liberal democracy, wealthy liberal democracy represented the end of history. That didn't mean there would not be struggle, there wouldn't be revanchism, there wouldn't be conflict, but that, that there was not sort of uh, some uh, state, desired state beyond that. And I thought about that because in some ways I've increasingly come to see environmentalism as sort of the ideology that exists at the end of history. It is really the secular, has become the secular religion of post-industrial societies. Uh, in a sense, at the end of history, the richest, most privileged people in the world, most entitled people in the world, stopped believing in progress. And, you know, it's, if you think about it, it's odd because, you know, here... You know, in Europe or in the United States, where, you know, of course, we have been incredible beneficiaries. I mean, we live extraordinary lives. Um, uh, we can do what we want. We can be what we want. We can s- construct all sorts of identities for ourselves. We can marry who we want, love who we want, do what we want. And we are the ones who have become most convinced that this disenchants the world. You wouldn't find these kinds of attitudes and this kind of pessimism, if you went to China or India or even Africa, these sort of narratives, uh, these declinist narratives, um, don't exist in places uh, that frankly have seen uh, a lot less progress than we have. So I want to talk a little bit about why that is, and, and I want to, in doing that, come back to this question of, well, is environmentalism the enemy of progress in and I think I would suggest more to the point, uh, more that it's just irrelevant uh, to progress. Environmentalism hasn't stopped 500 million Chinese in the last 20 years, moving from abject subsistence poverty to something that looked like modern lives. It hasn't stopped the dramatic reduction in uh, poverty uh, that we've seen. Uh, unprecedented numbers of people around the world, uh, again, uh, living Secure and reasonably prosperous lives, and that's both in absolute and percentage terms. So, if it's not actually stopping progress, well, what's the problem, and what is environmentalism really about? And I think actually, Frank, um, in some ways, kind of put his finger on it, which is that it's it's really, I think, much more about a search for sort of authenticity and meaning in the world in developed wealthy economies at a point when most of the big problems have been solved, the sort of struggle uh, and striving that that in some ways has just been the the human condition since really before we were even fully human, Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. So how do you find meaning in the world, especially in in these contexts and in these economies where we are, you know, uh, as Marx would say, uh, increasingly alienated from the means of production, um, specialization, um, and the ways that our economy organizes itself. Most of us go to work. We sit in front of a computer. And uh, at the end of the day, we have no idea what we've accomplished. If you were a, a blacksmith, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you'd shoot a bunch of horses or something. Um, you you actually knew what you'd produced, and you could understand what the value of it was um, in, in, in sort of real tangible terms. And I think for most of us in wealthy, complex, uh, developed economies, we just don't anymore. So, you know, this results in a kind of... Uh, I think it's real, and I don't want to dismiss it, but I think it's problematic when it gets projected onto the world, um, and uh, which really reflects a kind of uh, narcissism. What you get is what some people call wickedness. Um, in America, it's a polarization between sort of do-nothing environmentalism, uh, solutions that aren't really solutions, and know-nothing conservatism. Uh, and here in Europe, I think you've kind of uh, got a hegemonic uh, combination of the two called the precautionary principle. But I think what I would ultimately say, and I'll come back to some other points, what we get here is a kind of, uh, I think this kind of declinism uh, is actually profoundly problematic if you actually don't want to stop progress or restart progress, but just make progress better. Because if you don't believe in the future, you can't build a better world. And you certainly can't be uh, good partners to the billions of people who are still at the very early stages of the same journey towards freedom and prosperity and security that everybody in this room has long since traveled. Okay,
1: so.
4: thanks, Ted. <laughs> so I know why I'm invited, um, which is good. So um, the future we want to see, the future I would like to see, is where we live in houses that use very little energy, because they're very well insulated. And the energy we use, we capture from the sun and we store on the ground in the summer. And in winter, we pump up the warmth and we warm our houses. And therefore, we don't need natural gas to heat our houses. We don't need wood to heat our houses. We don't need anything. We just need to store the sun and have insulated houses. That's one thing we want to see. But it's not enough, because we also have industry and we have transport and we have other stuff we want to do to have comfortable lives, so what we also need is massive offshore windmill parks far away beyond the horizon that you can't see them and where the wind blows a lot stronger than what that it does on land. And you need a grid that can actually get those, that energy to land, to the people that use it. And when it doesn't blow, you need, of course, other forms of energy. So, for example, we also need a power grid from the south in, in Europe to the north where they use concentrated solar power something that exists but not on a large scale yet. So we also need that to power our houses and power our industries. So that's the, that's the future we want to get to because we think um, there's a limit to this planet and there's one very clear problem with our energy system and that is that we should stop emit too much CO2. And therefore, massive change is necessary. We have to completely throw over our economy and how we arrange stuff in the economy and how, where we get our energy from. But then there's a future possible that I just described. And there's been countless scenarios by us, but also by others, saying that is the way to go, and you can live without emitting CO2. That's one future we would like to see. Another one is a future where we have an agricultural system producing our food, uh, but in a different way than it's happening now. At the, so what we would like is smaller patches of land where different... Uh, crops are being grown, so there's diversity in our agricultural system. But it's not just agriculture. So in between the agricultural pieces of land, you have flowers. And why do you have flowers? Because that's where the natural enemies are of the, of the, the bugs that attack our crops. So instead of using pesticides, we use nature. Nature works with us to produce our food in a productive but in a safe way. So we don't have to use pesticides that give us cancer or pesticides that kill the bees, or anything like that. So is this environmentalist against progress or against change? I don't think so. I think what I just described is a revolution in our energy system and in our food system. And every day again I get up to work to get that change done, because I think it's essential if we want to live with 9 billion people in a nice way on this planet. I guess what we need to talk about is what is progress, and I hope that the chair can help us today that we try to do this based on facts, not on just ideas, but we need to fact-check the ideas that are being postulated today. So to give you a few examples, one of the things I really do not think is progress is that Shell is going to the North Pole to drill for oil. I don't see any progress there. So I'm very glad with the announcement this week of Shell. That because of lots of reasons, but among others, seven and a half million people um, told Shell not to do this. Because I don't believe we need the North Pole oil to drive in our light about Volkswagen. And that's the only way to have my transport. I think the way I can have my transport is with a train that runs on green power. I think I can have a bike to go to work. I think there's lots of other ways in which we can organize ourselves to have a sustainable way and still have the transport that we want. I'll give you another example. Last year, in November, I was in India. One of my colleagues invited me. And he took me to a village where people live and they farm. And what they would like is to get a grid connection. So what's very natural in the Netherlands and in Europe is that you have some power in your house. Is not normal for hundreds of millions of people in India. So this village applied to the grid and said, please hook us up to the grid. We would like to get some electricity. They've asked for that for 10 years. They didn't get it. Then we came in with some partners, and we put solar power in the in the in the village, creating its own grid. And now these people have not a lot, but some electricity in the houses, and they're happy as can be, because now the day doesn't shut down at seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night when it's all dark. But they have some light; they can study, they can do some other stuff, they can be productive in the evenings as well. And what you see is the. What the current government wants is they want to build more coal-fired power plants. And what they say is, we want to do this to give light to these poor people. But in fact, what you see happening is when they build a coal-fired power plant close to the cities, all the power is being consumed by the cities. And the the poor people don't really profit from it or don't profit from it at all. What you see is that, sure, it's progress because there's a new coal-fired power plant polluting the air, producing more electricity. But it doesn't bring prosperity or progress to people that really need it. So, yes, I believe in progress, and yes, I want it, but I want to right progress. I also want progress for the people that don't have electricity at the moment. Another example, very known, is that um, in the Netherlands we produce lots of milk, and then with the European subsidies we can ship that milk to Africa and give people uh, cheap milk. Is that really progress? Because basically it's not worth for the local farmers to grow their, or to, to make sure they get their own milk and sell it on the market because we outcompete them with subsidy. I think we can give more subsidy and get more farmers here to produce more milk, but if that's really the progress that we need, I don't think so. I think that's also... Huh? Piketty had a, a, a very famous book by now, but I think he showed in his research very clearly that the current system only makes sure that the wealth get wealthier and the poor get poorer. So we really radically need to change the current system, I think, because I think getting the rich richer and the poor poorer is not progress. I think we also have to look at how we divide progress equally amongst uh, the population on this planet. And lastly, what I wanted to say is that What we need to watch out for is that we think in what is progress for this planet and not in what is progress for some businesses. So what I hear a lot in when we talk about progress is actually that I hear a business model. So I went to an executive MBA in Rotterdam, and what you learn there, what they teach you there, is that the only thing that matters for a company is money. Of course, we knew this. That's not a surprise. But the second thing they teach you is that you have to think about what is your last thing, your... What is your competitive edge compared to your competitors? And how do you keep, how do you stay competitive? To give you an example, what is very easy to stay competitive is to build a coal-fired power plant and sell that power to the people. There's no one else who can sell you the power, so they can charge you extra. It's a monopoly. It's a very good business model. So they're very, very afraid that this business model will be thrown over if everybody installs solar panels on the roofs, which is exactly what you see in Germany. So the majority of renewables in Germany is actually being done by farmers, by local people, not by the big utilities. The big utilities will be the losers in the game in Germany because they were too late. They thought we will keep on with nuclear power plants and coal-fired power plants, and they are losing at the moment. So they're fighting back, and they're saying, no, no, this is not progress. We need our plants. The same is, for example, with GMOs, genetically modified organisms, or with pesticides us is being told that the only way to feed 9 billion people is by using pesticides. It's not true. So six years ago, the UN said, hey, there's 9 billion people coming to this planet in 2050. How are we going to feed them? And they said to 400 scientists, sort out how big this problem is and what the solution is. And these scientists did it, and they came up with a very good report saying, we can feed all these people, but we have to do some stuff differently, but GMOs is not really the solution pesticides is not really the solution and they basically lay out an organic farming revolution in front of us as the way to feed all these people so we should really make sure not think in business models because some of the big companies need these business models to stay competitive but we really fact check stuff and say what is the real progress what are the real solutions to get there okay thank you very much Thank you.